You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um, yesterday, the Fed came out and did hopefully its last increase to the Fed funds rate in this cycle. The Fed funds rate is now uh, between the target rate is between 5% and 5.25%, up from basically nothing about 13 or 14 months ago. So this was the fastest increase in the Fed's fund rate in history. Um, surprisingly, the economy has held up throughout all of this. Um, we're in the midst of a uh, banking crisis as well, too. As we've talked about at length, Silicon Valley Bank failed, Signature Bank failed, and there's a couple of other California banks that are seeking strategic alternatives. Banking stocks today are uh, getting hammered, is the polite way to say it, with uh, Pacific West Bank, which is one of those uh, California banks that's getting uh, especially beat up down 50%. First Horizon Bank, which has a big presence in New Orleans, received word that um, their uh, merger partner wants to back out, unsurprisingly, and TD Bank, and their stock price is down 40%. So there's basically carnage throughout the banking industry, which is um, probably going to result in tightening credit conditions. So you have the Fed increasing rates to try to slow inflation, and the economy is probably going to slow down because you have a lot of these regional banks that, that really can't afford to lend money out because their depositors are leaving. So a lot of interesting dynamics happening right now, which probably explains why the uh, odds of a rate cut uh, this year are pretty high. So the Fed raises rates to um, to slow down the economy and then cuts rates to encourage growth. So the, the market is basically saying that the, the Fed is going to have to essentially be accommodative to the economy and try to boost growth because what's happening right now is probably going to result in some economic strife. So with that being said, Doug, tell me what your thoughts are on the current situation and uh, what do you, how do you feel about everything that's going on? Uh, maybe we'll start with the Fed. I think um, not surprising that they raised rates yesterday, but I think um, as we've talked about over the last couple of months, I think it was a mistake. I think they should have paused um, before this previous rate hike and and of course, I think they should have paused yesterday. And the question that really comes to mind is, what's a higher likelihood? Is there a higher likelihood of some sort of 1970s style stagflationary period? Or is the higher likelihood of a uh, deflationary shock, a credit crunch in light of the current environment? And I would say the, the odds are uh, on the latter than the former. I think the, the high inflation, low growth environment that everyone was scared about uh, this time last year is really, um, I mean, there still is a probability of it, but I would say a very low probability of that occurring. I mean, if we've talked about trueflation, if you look at the trueflation data, it's down at the uh, estimated rate of 3.84%. The U.S. government's reported rate of CPI is 5%. This is down from, uh, you know, close to 10% uh, over the summer of 2022. So I think the stagflationary or sort of elevated inflationary environment that we were talking about a year ago is um, is likely behind us, which is why I don't really understand why 
the Federal Reserve is intent upon uh, continuing to raise rates when uh, it's seemingly the higher likelihood if there is a some sort of economic downturn, which is essentially what everyone's predicting now, is that it's a, sort of a credit-based issue and not necessarily an inflation-driven issue. So um, that's uh, also leading to probabilities of rate cuts as early as this next uh, FOMC meeting. I saw that the odds of a rate cut are now up to 10% for the Fed's next meeting, which would be absolutely stunning if they raised rates and then immediately cut the next meeting. It just shows, goes to show you that how um, they, nobody, even the people that are really theoretically driving the ship have no idea what direction it's going. Um, on banks, I mean, I think uh, the the question I have is is pretty logical. Why would you keep your money in a bank when, number one, that bank is paying less than 1% interest when I can go and buy a treasury for 5%. And number two, that bank may be functionally insolvent if, if uh, its loans are marked to market uh, because they were lending in a 0 to 1% interest rate environment and now we're in a 5% interest rate environment. So um, th that's a logical conclusion to say, um, even, if the, even if there was deposit insurance, let's move cash to uh, either money market or to treasuries to capture that yield because that yield really exists. Um, and, uh, and so I get that there's deposit flight. And on top of that, the fact that some of this is uninsured just accelerates that further. I think the first thing um, in, in terms of a government response to this, if there is a government response, would be uh, to, to uh, calm depositors by by increasing FDIC coverage. And then and the second response would be that there's probably not a good idea to keep raising rates when there's such a widespread between uh, depositor rates and you know, money market or treasury rates. So uh, those are my thoughts. Yeah. Um, the people that are running the Fed are definitely fallible. They don't, you know, they're, they have this position that they, that they uh, assume that they, you know, can basically be prognosticators and manage the economy, um, but they're certainly fallible. Did you see the the uh, Jay Powell uh, prank that the Russians did on him? No. So basically, these guys, these Russian, uh, I think they're comedians or whatever, uh, set up a call with Jay Powell impersonating uh, Zelensky of Ukraine, and they asked him. Seriously, if you look at it up, it's, it was it was in Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal about a week ago, and they asked him in January what his um, what his uh, thought process was as it relates to how many more rate increases there were going to be this year, and he basically divulged everything. He said, "There's this happened in January," and I would encourage you, anyone who's interested to see it because they were it was it was obviously not Zelensky that was interviewing him, <laughs> but he was, he was, uh, he, he was very forthright and told him what was, what he thought was going to happen, which is two more rate increases this year. And then eventually they would have to look, the fed has two mandates. One being, um, that they have to control inflation and keep it around 2%, but also full employment. But then, so he, he said, eventually we're going to have to shift to that second mandate. Um, so, these people obviously have a lot of control in our lives, et cetera, but they can, you know, get to the point of where they um, make mistakes and um, can divulge information to uh, Russians posing as a uh, as an, a Ukrainian uh, president. Uh, also, so people that that act like they know a whole lot but really don't, 
we talk about Jim Cramer quite a bit. Um, I saw, so he, this is in, uh, in April, April 19th, Western Alliance is back and is stronger than ever. The big takeaway so far. Now, of course, this is one of the uh, bank stocks that's get down like 60% or something like that since then. So even though that these people have these, um, these, especially in this, from the standpoint of Powell, who is in charge of driving the economy and managing the central bank, um, he's uh, still a human. And, and uh, Jim Cramer is obviously, um, basically, in, if you go inverse him, that's probably a pretty good bet. Um, but yeah, so I, I just wanted to point that out that these these guys are are uh, still human beings and they're they're trying to make decisions, but they're they're doing it with limited capacity because they're just humans. Yeah, I mean, remember this time last year, the I don't remember exactly what CPI was, but it was you know six and seven percent. We haven't even raised rates yet, and so um, I mean, if this if if the Federal Reserve drives the economy into recession by over tightening, um, it would be uh, pretty amazing that they um, number one were so late to the game, and then number two were so late to the game to raise rates and so late to the game to pause or cut rates um, in light of all of these these bank failures that we're seeing uh, now. I mean, we, you didn't mention First Republic, which, uh, you know, is uh, what now the third largest bank failure First Republic was assumed by uh, J.P. Morgan over the last couple of weeks. So it's uh, it goes it gets to the point where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that even if you know, banks in strong positions just because depositors are are basically saying um, you know I'm I'm more comfortable at a JP Morgan or or whatever one of these six or eight uh, systemically important banks uh, you would you know, people are moving money there just to because you don't want you don't want to be the last one holding the bag as the bank's shutting down and I get that and so there has to be some sort of incentive if you're going to protect those banks you have to incentivize people to keep deposits at other banks because um, otherwise, it's just an unfair game that you're playing. This is from Ben Carlson. The regional banking ETF has been in existence since 2006. The total performance for the fund since inception, so it's been about you know, 17 years or whatever, is now less than 8% versus plus positive 347% for the S&P 500 over that same 17-year period. So it's just that it has been a horrible place to be from an investment standpoint. I really think that it's it's really not a good thing for the economy on the whole for these small banks to be just folding because think, think about the, the banking activity that happens at a local level. You need these types of entities that are willing to loan to people and businesses, et cetera. And uh, it's got to be hard to go to a big bank and get that that um, type of uh, – get those it types of loans done. I, mean, I think it's almost 70% of commercial loans are um, – are uh, funded through regional banks. And yeah, so I, mean, uh, we get, I think it's something like 68% or something like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, an issue if, if these banks don't, don't survive because then you've got, um, I mean, you're not, if you're, if you're somebody that's seeking a, you know, half a million, a million dollar loan or whatever, uh, or even, Morgan's not going to do that. Yeah. They're not going to they're not going to talk to you. So you know, and not only so regional banks are getting are getting killed basically, but it's even in, even more so in the microcosm of California. Um, and really, it's 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 truly amazing how the the narrative changes because 
when we were younger, everybody was dropping out of school, basically all these, these founders and moving to California and starting companies. It was the cool place to be. And now basically to the two, two of the three, uh, bank failures or assumptions of control were um, uh, First Republic Bank at San Francisco, Signature Bank, which is based in New York, and then Silicon Valley Bank, which was obviously based in Silicon Valley. So California is especially uh, acutely hit, and and uh, the other banks that are sort of teetering right now are also California banks. So that whole narrative behind California being the sort of light on the shining hill has totally changed. Um, and that's reflected in the demographic data as well too. This is the top ten move out of move out of metros uh, for Q1 year over year. Out of the top ten, uh, San Francisco is number one uh, with a net outflow of thirty one thousand. Los Angeles number three with a net outflow of twenty thousand. Um, and then there's some other cities that that wouldn't be too much of a surprise. Uh, just basically big uh, cities and, on, and then most of them on the west coast. Um, on the other side of the coin, um, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Cape Coral, North uh, Sarasota. So, uh, uh, Florida has been a huge winner in this whole this whole uh, uh, change. Doug, what do you think is what do you think about that whole uh, shift in narrative? Uh, before we get there, I was just thinking about this. You mentioned that uh, tweet by Ben Carlson about the regional bank ETF being up. Oh, only 8% in total return since uh, 2007, right? And the and the market is like something like tripled or something like that since then. It made me think of energy um, and specifically the time period of 2007 to COVID uh, in which uh, energy, the price of oil, if you remember, this was this time, 2020, that oil went negative. XLE, which is the Energy Select Sector ETF, since uh, March of 2007 through March of 2020, had an inclusive of dividends, had a negative 34% total return. Um, so that's over, what, uh, 13 years. Uh, same period of time, March of 2020 until March of 2023, has a total return of 116%. And so... Some at, at some point in time with any sort of sector. So first of all, the, fir the first thing you should take away from this is don't put your, all of your eggs in one basket. Diversification really works because you want to be exposed to energy or you want to be exposed to regional banks at the exact wrong time. But on the flip side of this, uh, there there is there comes to a point in which there's no sellers left. And the, the ones that survive, survive and thrive in a big way. And, and I think energy is a really good example of that. Over the last three years since, uh, since oil really bottomed during COVID, uh, there's been more than an, a double in terms of return for, for that sector and that ETF. And while really, especially during 2022, uh, the markets um, were not doing well, energy was the one bright spot. And so... Um, I'm, I'm of, of the be belief that even though there is a major bearishness and, and secular, potentially secular change away from smaller banks into larger banks because of that incentive, uh, structure, I, I think that, um, there will be a way for, uh, companies like this to survive and, and people are going to make a lot of money on it. Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny, Doug, during that, the, 
20 so the the uh, there's a cyclical bear market in energy that began i think in like 2012 and then ended in 2020 2015 2017 is when it ended 15 no it started in 15 2015 to 2020 so during that period of time nobody wanted to own energy and and uh, the uh the the companies that put together investment vehicles would craft these investment vehicles that would emulate an index but specifically excluded energy Um, so for example you could buy the s p 500 x energy which was simply just would they basically carve out that sector and you're invested in everything else but that one sector that energy specifically that had been underperforming well most recently this i got an email from ProShares, and uh, it was uh get the s p 500 lose the financials and this is <laughs> right. spxn this is a pro shares s p 500 x financials etf so that's probably a really bullish indicator for financials when you have this negative sentiment that takes hold when you've had that's that eventually i mean let me pose this question to you if you had a strategy that was like that underperformed over that long of a time period like ben carlson referenced that's underperformed by like 300 percent versus the index i mean at some point you just you might throw in the towel but like you're saying at that there's got to be no uh at a certain point there's no more sellers yeah, I mean, and it's going to happen. It'll it'll come for your industry next, right? That's the problem with being all in on a certain uh, strategy. I think tech is experiencing that specifically, like venture and early stage venture or small growth in the public markets. Um, that you you can't hide. You, there is nothing that is a uh, cyclical. I mean, the only closest thing to that it would be like staples and utilities but they go through valuation increases and decreases even though their earnings may stay somewhat stable so uh, i just think that um there are these types of industries whether it's uh, financials whether it's home builders energy that are uh, levered to the economy and and very pro-cyclical go through these bust periods and the and the people that um that are thrown in the towel now um, will likely not experience a, an upside if that's if that's going to be carrying the next part of the market. The people that are contrarian in these areas are typically the ones that are going to make the most money. Although you can obviously be too early, like you know Kramer's talking about in you know, after the in the aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank saying go buy this and this and this. Well, what about the next leg down? So um, don't be all in on one strategy, but at the same time understand that. Um, you know, at some point in time, the, the sellers are, are non-existent and, and people say, wait, I can buy a really high quality bank for three and four times earnings and just, you know, if it survives, then I make a ton of money. Right. So looking at we're we're basically past the sort of peak of earnings season. And so we've gotten some sort of snippets from uh, corporate earnings calls and earnings reports. Uh, this The narrative is that the, in terms of this sort of, we mentioned trueflation, which gives us a live update of inflation data versus what the Fed is looking at, which is uh, lagging data, which is pretty stale. And so the analogy is that they're looking, they're they're driving, looking in the rearview mirror, but they don't know how fast they're going or what's ahead. But S, the S&P 500 earnings calls and the reports actually have pretty fresh data. What, what I find interesting are there's a couple of snippets that, number one, McDonald's is notices some spending patterns changing amongst their consumers and um, 
one thing specifically that they they point to as it relates to a slowing economy is that people are um, they're cutting back specifically by not adding fries to their burger order as often, um, which I don't know how you do that honestly. It's kind of a you have to they have to go together as far as I'm concerned. But if they see that in the live data, it's not good as it relates to the American consumer and international consumer. Secondarily, the uh, the words job sh shortage versus job cut um, for the last really the last two years, job shortage meaning the inability to hire people far and out far outpace the mention of job cuts in earnings calls, and that narrative started to shift. So, uh, corporate executives are are looking back, looking at uh, paring back their um, headcount more than they are trying to fill jobs, or at least they're mentioning them more frequently, uh, paring back on earnings calls. So those are some, you're starting to see some, uh, some, for lack of a better word, uh, some uh, cracks in the economy, um, some, some uh, shoots that are growing up in a negative way, really. Um, so uh, I, as Powell, as Powell predicted to uh, fake Zelensky. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. So it, eventually, they're, the narrative is going to shift on that uh, on that equ equation. They're going to have to shift gears once they see once the, um, in three months when they actually see what's happening in the inflation data. Maybe they'll they'll uh, be accommodative again. Yeah, I think um, this is this is just an interesting year. We've talked about this a lot, like we're that we're just tired of talking about the Federal Reserve, but it's not, it seems like they're just going to be ever present. Um, in, in our lives, at least during volatile times, because they're going to be in the headlines, uh, you know, having to come in f with a rescue package uh, at some point if this if the economy turns over by you know instituting quantitative easing again by lowering rates, and so uh, I think we're not going to get away from at least um, for the better part of this year away for, from talking about the Fed. Uh, and I'm I'm uh, just ex I guess it's really since launching the podcast it's been uh, the the topic of conversation. Uh, in, in terms of where we stand now with markets, I think it, it's uh, it's really difficult to pass up a five percent plus treasury, and I think that that's has implications on every asset class uh, and has implication on banks. Five percent one year treasury. Yeah, exactly. But the, the ten years three point three is that's the issue. Yeah, but I think what people are saying now is, look, let me uh, sit, I'll, I'll sit it out I'll for sit a year. Out. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll collect five percent while I sit out, and I think that that's a reasonable and a rational thing to do. And um, here's and the issue with that, though, Doug, as you know, this is when the, when earnings are negative in the S and P five hundred, um, or earnings are down year over year, uh, returns are positive seventy seven percent of the time, positive by ten percent or more sixty one percent of the time, positive by twenty percent or more. 45% of the time, positive by uh, negative by 10% or worse, only 16% of the time. So that that uh, sentiment of saying, okay, well, things are starting to get a little choppy. Let me sit it out. Return, I can get clip 5% coupon on a treasury over the course of a year. Um, the historical data from 1930 to 2021, this is from Schiller, shows that um, your best chances of a 10 or 20% return or when earnings is when earnings are down year over year. So, like on the other side of the coin, and when earnings are up year over year, you have still have a decent chance of a ten or twenty percent plus year, but you have better chance, uh, sixty one percent chance, uh, if returns of returns of ten percent or more when 
earnings are down year over year and close to a 50% chance um, when return when, when uh, earnings are down year over year of 20% or more returns. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, I think the um, I think pushback on that would be just valuation, uh, and I'd be curious as to where where price to earnings ratios were during those periods in which earnings growth was flat or negative, and how that compares to price to earnings ratios now. I mean, the the Ford PE on the market is about average, eighteen times, slightly above average, but you know, basically twenty the twenty five year average is is according to JP Morgan's guide to the markets is is 16.8 times. So um, we're about 10% above historical averages from a PE ratio perspective. And, and uh, I just I would be curious if, um, if there's any sort of correlation between negative earnings and low PE, because essentially negative earnings is, is recessionary type periods, Uh, I would say typically it would be uh, aligned with a recession. And so uh, do, do PE ratios drop in anticipation of a recession? And at what point in time does uh, does that that sort of shift occur? Where um, the, it's the, almost the same exact thought process. P, PE ratios decline because people are selling, and, and so price declines. And so, at what point are there not enough sellers that it just turns around, even if earnings are continuing to decline? after it. So anyway, that's like an open-ended, ambiguous question, but that would maybe we'll follow up on that as a, as a research project. But um, anyway, I think uh, from, a, from a market perspective, we've got a, essentially an average price to earnings ratio and a high, um, high interest rate right now. I, I, I generally view that as sort of optimistic from the perspective of long-term returns for a balanced account. Um, right. And less f- forecast driven, less being more of a prognosticator because um, I don't know where this is going over the next six months. And neither does the Federal Reserve. They don't even know where it's going over the next month or two. And we've got a, um, we didn't even talk about it, but we can t- talk about it next week. We've got a, a potential uh, showdown in Washington with uh, you know, a default on on U.S. debt unless the, the, there comes to an agreement with the debt ceiling. So that'll be an interesting t- topic of conversation over the next 30 days never a dull moment yeah all right well uh we'll uh we'll wrap it up with that and uh thanks for listening share with your friends and uh we'll be back next week this is greg and doug stokes with lanyap podcast uh thanks for joining thanks for listening to this episode of lanyap This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.